Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my honor to welcome both Deborah Kaplan and Rick Kaler. Now, both of these folks are professionals and I can say friends because we've known each other for a long time now. They're colleagues in the field of financial therapy. They are mentors of mine in many ways. So we have multiple places of connection. But what's most exciting is that Deb and Rick have both recently published together their newest book, Coupleship Inc. Now, what's really amazing is Deb has a couple of her own books that precede this, as well as Rick. And so two great minds coming together creates one really incredible book. And I had the pleasure of reviewing Coupleship Inc., their book that they'll be talking about today. And there's so much guidance, so much wisdom, and so much integration with therapy and personal finances that I'm looking forward to hearing from these two incredible authors about their story of writing this book and why it would be so helpful for you to grab a copy and leave a five-star review. So Deb, Rick, (laughs) welcome to the show. (laughs) You said it just like we wrote it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, we were talking about before the show got started. Well, what would be great for you guys on this interview? Well, we'd love to sell, you know, a thousand copies of the book. Well, I agree. That would be great. Can't guarantee that. And five-star reviews would... No, we didn't say sell a thousand, a spike overnight. Ooh, even more important. Yes. The <laughs> spike overnight. Yes. Yes. And let's add on five-star reviews. So listeners, um, from the heart of authors, five-star reviews do actually really matter and help out. So if you read Deb and Rick's book and it is impactful for you, leave a review on Amazon. It does make a really big difference. Um, Deb, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your work as a professional? My uh, role job therapist um, is what I came to after I was on Wall Street for many years. I was a commodity option trader and I was in financial markets. And over a period of time, I became more fascinated with the psychology of money than I became interested in making money. And there were a couple of precipitating events of which I don't have to go into. They became part of uh, previous books. But as a result of being interested in the psychology of money, the emotional drivers of money, I wandered into the field of therapy and I began to work with individuals and couples around their power dynamics and their power struggles in relationship. And what do many couples argue about? Well, they come in perhaps arguing about childcare and parenting and sexual preference differentials, sex, but they also argue about money and much to the detriment of many marriages or relationships, money can be a, um, critical conversation. And that is what also then began my journey in writing about how money and those aspects of a relationship need a lot more tender care in therapy and in the financial therapy world for couples that don't know how to navigate it on their own. Love it. That's great. That's great. Yeah. 
I was just writing about it this morning for a blog post about just that experience of doing money together and how many couples actually see mom and dad doing money together in a really loving, intimate way. And it's tiny as far as I can tell. So this is going to be great. Now, Rick, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey? How did you get to writing about financial therapy? Yeah, I'm going to try and make this short. So I, I got interested in therapy as a result of a divorce did a lot of group therapy and made a mistake that said, uh, I told the therapist, I'll get out of group therapy when I stop learning anything new. Never say that if you're going to get in group therapy. It was 12 years and I only got out so my wife could get in. So I hadn't stopped okay. learning something new. Um, and while I was in group therapy, I kept thinking, wow, wouldn't it be Really cool if you did group around money because nobody ever talks about money. And yeah. um, I had an opportunity to approach a um, codependency outpatient treatment program that said, yeah, let's try that. So we started doing five and a half day workshops around therapy and money. And that's kind of where financial therapy started around 2005 or so, sometime around there. Um. So I was, as a financial planner, I dealt with couples all the time. I had right. zero interest in becoming a financial therapist because I liked working with therapists in a financial therapy situation. But I was the financial situation and they were the therapy situation. And yeah, uh, therapy yeah, right. scared to death out of me like any emotion. If an emotion used to get out in my office... I just try to stamp it out and let's get back to the bears, the mutual fund charts, you know? Yes, yes, yes. yes. So I, I got interested in becoming a fan financial therapist, even though I was a co-founder of the whole, whole movement. Uh, when I discovered something called IFS internal family systems, which gave me a tool as a left brain, uh, financial planner to, um, to make some sense of, of the uh, therapeutic part of financial therapy. And uh, one thing that I told myself about was I, I was actually looking at a training on applying IFS to couples therapy. And I have a lot of wounding around couples fighting. In fact, when a couple would start fighting in my office, and this is before I understood IFS, I would say, well, most, most of me is over there under the desk because somebody's going to die. Only my body is sitting here witnessing this. <laughs> uh -huh. And so I thought, you know, this might be very interesting for me to do some training in this. And this part of me said, listen, dude, you are going to do no training in couples therapy unless you promise you will never be a couples therapist. So I said, you know, I think I can make that promise. So I, I did this actually, ironically. Just before Deb approached me with an idea of doing this pro project, uh, up until that time, the answer had been a hard no. <laughs> what, what do I know about couples? Are you kidding me? It sounds like the only thing you knew about couples is I don't want to work with them. Yeah, you like, got that as a right. therapist. Totally. Right? I'll be your financial planner as long as there's no emotion in the room. I'm good to go. You got it. And. 
But as you know, Ed, therapists sometimes don't want to work with couples because oh. it's the high watermark right. of conflict and dealing with that dynamic three people in a room, let alone two. Well, and I, I think it probably recreates a lot of the family dynamic. You know, a lot of us therapists grow up in families where conflict is endemic or very problematic. And so now all of a sudden you're back in watching mom and dad fight. It's not your mom and dad, but the psychological projection process. And what we'll talk about, and I think this is what's so unique about your book and this therapy lens, Rick, that you've introduced is uh, both Deb and Rick are very adept and knowledgeable in the in the global field of therapy, but also some very specific models or approaches to therapy. And what they're talking about and what they've brought to their book is a model of therapy called internal family systems. And they use that as a lens for really helping us to understand what's going on in our relationship with money. So Deb, can you walk us through a little bit of what is internal family systems therapy? Well, actually I'm, I'm, I want for the, um, for history, I want to I want to be more accurate. Fair. That is not a modality that I had and have training in, and that was part of what Rick brought to this process. And so his influence when we got together and talked about what will this book look like, what do we want to do, um, it was through the introduction of IFS and IFIO, which is what Rick brought to that. So that question is probably better suited for Rick. So, And before Rick picks up on this question, I just want to know, well, Deb and Rick are not, they're a professional couple, meaning they worked on this book together, but they just practice a very nice couple way of relating, right? Is I, I gave meaning to Deb and Deb said, well, thank you. But actually it's my co-author that brought that part, right? So it's honoring and respecting the relationship. And that's a big part of, I like to try to, name when good dyadic relationship, right? Because a couple is a dyad. It's a group of two people trying to navigate being in relationship. And they both, Deb and Rick, both contributed to this book in ways that I don't fully know. So I'm curious and I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and we're going to have fun with this. So, all right. So Rick, IFS, lay it on to us at the high level. What's, what, is, what are we talking about here? Yeah, as, as Deb highlighted, we have a, a quite an unusual uh, coming together because we both brought uh, things that were that the other one didn't have. So it's not like we're both doing the same thing at all. We're both doing very different things. And they came together in well, what I think turned out to be a, a really nice way. We didn't know if they were going to turn out to be really nice. <laughs> like with anything coming together, you know, there was a lot of, oh my God, what is this? And what are we saying? And uh, a lot went into that. Uh, so IFS, internal family systems, is not family systems therapy. And I say that because so many people, I just got a, somebody wanted me on their podcast because they wanted me to speak to all of their therapists that are family uh, systems therapists. Now, I don't know a mm. thing about family systems therapy. So family systems therapy is what uh, the founder, uh, Richard Schwartz, uh, was an expert in. And he was out to prove to the world that family systems therapy was the be-all, end-all. And family systems, in my language, is just saying there's not a black sheep of the family. There's not an identified patient. There's not a scapegoat. Um, that particular person is the result of the dynamics of an organization or the dynamics of the, of the family. And you've got to heal the family before you're going to, to heal that 
uh, particular individual. And what yeah. happened is his patients taught him how to turn that on the inside. That we all have yeah. this family of parts. And that uh, we are multiple personalities, not in the diagnostic sense. But how often do you hear somebody saying, a part of me would like to do this and another part of me wants to do that. I mean, it's so common. We hear it, I would say, almost every day. And he took that and said, well, uh, let's, I'm interested in what that part of you thinks. And over 40 years, he has developed a, a very eloquent and efficient modality of helping individuals, uh, especially around trauma is one of the things that he has found this to be very, very helpful in. So that's basically what IFS is. I like to say it, it is a facilitator helping the client interview their parts. Now, it's really simplistic. But um, sure. it, I, I'm certified in this, but I'm not a therapist. I'm a practitioner. And this is the beautiful thing for any financial therapist listening to this that are not uh, don't have a, a license in mental health is you can become trained and certified in this and you have a tool. And the reasons that it's effective is it requires you, I say facilitator, right? Getting out of the way. So you're not yeah. there for advice. You're not there for analyzing. You are there to help the client um, go where they need to go and heal themselves in the way they need to be healed. So, um, and then that can be used with couples. So that's the bridge in relationship uh, over Deb with some of your work. And you're, you have lots of professional experience working with couples. And how does that blend then with, with the work that you're doing with Rick? And how does this start move us towards understanding couples and money? To add on to Rick, what you said, all therapists and financial advisors, people who live in the world, say, you know, there's a part of me that wants to save money for retirement. There's a part of me who wants to spend and have fun in today. And I recognize as a therapist that to pathologize a couple, one partner in a coupleship as, well, you know, you're the one who wants to save and therefore you, partner who wants to save, the saver, doesn't want to have fun today. It doesn't help a couple and it doesn't even help a person when we pathologize or cast one role as the um, the, the evil, you know, no devil, no angels yeah. here. And it helps the coupleship align together on the common problem, which is how do we solve this problem? Because we both bring our own internal parts and our histories and our emotional connection to money. And it allows them to be curious about each other and about themselves in that process. That piece is really hard for couples is that balanced curiosity about self and other. Is that fair to say? Like, especially when they start to get locked into their money, whatever their money conflict happens to be is the curiosity is kind of out the window and blaming? Sure, because we double down on why I'm right and you must be wrong and I'm not the problem, you are, at its worst, right? right? A, a loving couple might say, you know, I don't think you're hearing me. I don't think you, I don't think you really are hearing what I'm trying to do for us. And it becomes very defense-oriented versus curious and joining-oriented. And this allows for that. 
Our book allows for that. Is that deeper level of intimacy and joining with that helps them actually find their own solution to the money problem. So I think like people, when they think about financial planners are coming to financial planners for like, you tell us the solution to our money problem. Right. But that's, that's not what we're doing in financial therapy is we're not coming up with financial solutions for couples, at least as I understand it. Is that fair to say? Well, I think Rick has a different approach because he, you know, when, when couples or an individual comes to me, I make it very clear I will not do budgets, I don't do investing, I don't do advising, because that's outside the realm of what I bring to this therapy. But I know Rick has a different approach because of what he does have a license to do. So even hitting that pause, because I know there's people that are starting to look for financial therapists and they're trying to figure out what do, what do these people do? And I think, Deb, you're highlighting a good point is, well, we're the same and different. Each professional that connects with financial therapy has a slightly different way of approaching or thinking about what's going on in financial therapy. And so that's okay. Just as a consumer, no, there's going to be a little bit of writing. You may have to do some asking to to find the person that's the right fit for you. So Rick, there's a, a whole language system with IFS, like different parts have different names. Is that fair to say? How do we deal with the names of the different parts of ourself? Yeah, with the IFS theory, Dick Schwartz would say that um, the parts of ourselves get forced into roles that they really don't want to uh, be in because of trauma. So typically, there's a wounding, there's a trauma uh, that happens. Typically, it's when we're ki- we're a kid, and often there's no understanding around that that wounding, or there there's not an adult really there for us, and really there for us emotionally, to make sense of what just happened. And what just happened to a kid can be traumatic when an adult would look at it going, you're kidding me, because the adult can put context around it, the kid can't. So that's why I tell parents, you can't control the money scripts and the wounding that your kids are going to have, because you you may not even see them happening. So this wounded part says, oh, my God, I never want to feel this again. They're not encouraged to feel it, to process it. Uh, And so another part of us is forced into the role of, I will make sure that happens for you, which we call a protector. So this is where a money script will come from that a kid is robbed by their, their parents. Piggy bank, banks robbed for multiple reasons, could be bankruptcy, this is a real case. The kid is violated and hurt and wounded in that. And so a money script develops from a protector that says, you better spend your money as soon as you get it, because it will disappear. So that protector puts that money script in, into action. Usually that's a manager, what we call a manager. Uh-huh. And uh, you can go into adulthood as one, my one client did. Uh, with that money script and never have any savings. You're not an overspender. You just don't have any savings. You have other another type of protector called a firefighter. And this is the one that uh, will uh, go, take a, a flamethrower and burn anything to soothe the part. This is when the manager fails. And this is very uh, common in an addictive behavior. It could be alcohol. It could be uh, spending money. It could be almost anything where, where the uh, 
the exile breaks out, the feelings are getting out, the managers can't contain it, and the firefighter says, I'm going to put you out of your misery. And, and it's with good intention. That's the important thing. All of these are with good intention. And so uh, you'll get some uh, behavior like uh, drinking or overspending or something to try and soothe. So let's, so let's put this into couples capacity, yeah. like application into a coupleship yeah. or real life. So the, the little boy grows up to be an adult and he gets into a relationship and he just spends away. Yeah. You know, he's constantly spending, does not appear to adhere to any budgets, seems to be willy nilly, just spend for today. There is no tomorrow. And the partner, same sex or other, doesn't really matter. The partner that he's in a relationship with says, what is going on? My God, you burn money through. It's like it, it cannot live in your pocket. Yeah. It, the minute it hits your pocket, it's gone. And this is absurd. And we can't live like this because the partner is arguing with the script, with the, with the part of that little yeah. boy who's now an adult right. who says, this money is going to be taken from me. And now my partner's trying to pull it back and save it and take it from me again. And that's how it plays out. So we can, through the lens of part work, parts work, help couples see that what they're arguing with is their history, their financial trauma, but they're not fighting each other, which helps them align together against the problem. So I got a question for the two of you. This happened recently with a client is that they articulated, I'm feeling really uncomfortable going backwards. And you know, you, I shared that I had sexual abuse in my history and you know, you're, you asked me about it. And now I feel really uncomfortable with it. How do we help folks work with, I'm just trying to get on and move forward with my life. How, do, how does IFS help us understand our relationship with our history and past traumas, what's happening in the present and, and you know, financial planning, so much of financial planning is kind of looking into the future and making plans for the future. So I hope my question makes sense. There's a lot there. That's a great question for Deb. I want to back up a bit and also put context to Coupleship Inc. from financial conflict to financial intimacy. When Rick and I began to explore this book, what would it look like? What did he, you know, what Rick's thoughts were? Um, and if I could deviate for a second, Rick said, like, you know, what projects are you working on, Deb? And I said, you know, you know I'm thinking of writing another book for couples. And I said, what project are you working yeah. on? And one thing led to another. But what it became clear was that we were thinking that couples, each individual is like an organization. We bring together two organizations that make up a new business, which is the business of this relationship. Right, yeah. And therefore, when a, a partner, let's say a spouse, wife, let's make it heteronormative just for the sake of simplicity of, of clarity, when a wife brings her own history and her parts of self, the aspects of her own inner organization, her company, comes together with her husband's or boyfriend or whatever, we each have a different perspective that we can't ignore. The, those aspects of ourself are alive and well in the here and now. And so we don't have to go back and live in the past. We have to explore it enough to understand the context of today. Mm, and that's a hard journey for a lot of folks to take at least in my experience, how does IFS help make that journey? Mm, I don't know if it's less hard or productive. Maybe it's more productive. 
Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I, I think what IFS does is it separates yourself from the part. And by that, I mean this. If you're really angry at your partner and you say, I am so angry at you. That was such a stupid thing for you to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Receive, yeah. receive that. And now receive this. There is a part of me that's so angry with you. It really thinks that that was not a wise thing to do. Just in that framing, there's a difference. Because I, I haven't said all of me. I've said a part of me, which opens up there's a part of them that isn't angry with me. Right, right, yes. Which is why we introduce constructive conversations and model that in dialogue in our exercises in the book for couples to be able to have a structure to follow in order and to when you can start like looking that. at your partner yeah. through the lens of, okay, I'm arguing as a part of themselves. This isn't them fully. It's a part yeah. of them. That can start shifting things, like Deb said, from being super defensive to start... Um, listening, considering it, that, and then IFIO, Intimacy from the Inside Out, which is the IFS version of couples therapy, really emphasizes starting to look at what's happening in you. Because typically I'm always focused on, well, if my partner would change, the world would be great. Oh, we've heard that a gazillion times. And I know we're throwing a lot of letters. Yeah. I know we're throwing a lot of letters around. Yeah. But what I think is important for the, for the reader to take away and the person who wants to get the benefit of the book is that we make it very user-friendly. We make it very applicable to real life and simplify this process of parts and understanding parts of ourselves, like organizational parts. I know, you know, that I appreciate that. And that's definitely something that was clear to me when I was reading the book um, is, is that kind of for the psychology novice, if you will, and therapy novice, like you don't have to have a master's degree in counseling to understand what uh, Rick and Deb are talking not. about. It's actually quite the contrary, actually. We hope that you don't because that like you will then start pointing out like, well, but it could be this. It could be, well, no, don't worry. Like, let's keep this focused and simple and applicable is really the, the point, right? Is and, and I thought, you know, it's it for me it's been a bit of a mental journey of accepting like oh i have parts of myself so even though we're highlighting like a part of me this a part of me that it's like really settling into that is is helpful and and rick i felt kind of and you know this word gets used sometimes energetically but when you said i'm just so angry at you and that like even though i knew it wasn't at me i could feel the full force of that coming at me and then when you were saying a part of me is angry i was like oh like only a part of me is feeling you know touched by this right now and so right i think ifs talks about that you have kind of a i might not use the ifs language but a core self or an authentic self or a real self that's always there and intact 
and that often the that kind of angry attacking part is a protector part. It's not actually the the real self. Is that? Yeah, that would be accurate. So when couples are kind of in their real selves or connected to that, then what happens for them as they're talking about their finances? Well, the 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 goal initially is to try and uh, drop the energy uh, to help them begin to see each other as a person and not an object, not the their enemy. Um, oftentimes, what will happen through this process is they'll actually become. Uh, able to see that they're both wanting the same thing, that they're really on the same page, that they're just going about it very differently. Uh, and Deb can speak to this a lot better than I can. We've got to get the, 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 the not we got to get, because we're not going to get anything, but we want to create an atmosphere in a container where they can start softening and seeing the other, listening to the other story, seeing them for that part, and also the other part's good intent. That's a, a real key is once we can start seeing the good intent that's behind the uh, behavior, things can ramp down and eventually we can start having meaningful conversations. Deb, what do you, what do you pick up from that? What, what Rick is saying? He's like, oh, Deb could even say more about this. Yeah, it was, on, it was around the time when, uh, you know, couples really argue, but they want the same thing. And that is true. It's in the interpretation of where do we want to end up when we want the same thing. And it's going about recognizing that there are many paths to get in the same direction. But I think at times couples don't always know they want the same thing. They actually are battling for their position rather than for where they want to align together. And shifting for a moment away from the IFS or parts work, because that's a component of the book, but the emphasis of our book is really understanding behaviors, money behaviors, beliefs that help create that staunch rigidity around this is what I do and this is what you're doing in a conflicted way. It's understanding in context the behaviors and our money scripts to then get a language they can talk together and therefore understand what's behind financial enabling or dependency or um, the cognition. I know that Rick and I had very animated, and I I will say conversations, because it was never an argument. It was just a belief of, no, I don't know if we need cognitive uh, cognitive, um, beliefs here. And Uh, Rick is saying no with his fingers. I was like, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and... back and forth around, you know, this is about emotion, not cognition. I was like, I know, I, but I really believe that a lot of people operate on that belief system of, uh, you know, what their core cognitions are. So it was during a conference that the three of us were at that began to really bring this to life where it resonated with people and because they want to understand not only what they feel, but what they think. And I need to add... I was like, no, we're not going to have uh, cognitive biases, heuristics, behavioral finance. No, because that is macro and we are about the micro. This is one of my pet peeves. You know, I'll be introduced as uh, in behavioral finance. And Deb was was making a case for them. And so, um, no, no, it's not helpful. 
for you as a couples therapist or any therapist to say, oh, client, right now you're anchoring. Oh, there goes confirmation bias. Yes, now you're hurting. Oh, but they are good on a macro level. So I said, well, underneath all of those things, there is an exile. Why do we have confirmation virus? I, and so I, got th- I just started thinking, what's going on internally that comes out as confirmation bias? Hmm, I want to make sure I listen to only what I listen to that affirms what I feel I believe because I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of being wrong. What does it mean if I was wrong? It means I'm a failure. It means I'm terminally messed up. It means I'm defective. I'm corrupt. So we added that into, I think, how many do we have? Seven? Seven biases in there? Yeah, we kept Very it minimal. <laughs> yeah. A lot got left on the cutting there floor. Are hundreds of them. Can you imagine? We'd still be writing the book if we did all of them. And quite frankly, when people <laughs> ask me what's unique or different, I, I'm most proud of that particular chapter because it's the first time that yeah. I have seen macro cognitive biases related and brought down to a micro personal level really applied it's not heady it's user friendly and because it resonates with us because we do default to information that we think we have and that we believe is the truth versus a truth or a perspective um and so yeah that was one of our conceptual conversations that were like yeah i I really want this i think there's a lot here no i don't think there isn't uh, but it came to pay, it, it worked out. And again, you know, the book flowed. It really was a creation, a collective creation of our strengths yeah. that we have in different areas that we brought together. Well, and I mean, isn't that the beauty of couples, right? Like all the couples you're working with in the planning office or in a couples therapy, they they lose sight of that fact that they get stuck on this, like, we're so different, this is a p- big problem that we're so exactly. different. And it's like, yeah, I have this very simple model in my head where it's like opposites attract, opposites annoy, and that's where we stop. And what we really need to get to is like opposites are like beautiful and we accept it and embrace it, right? It, it's a crude model. It's not published anywhere. It's- I say to couples, it's a beautiful model. And I, and I say to couples, if you were literally starting a business, and you needed to find someone who would be the CEO and the CFO, you wouldn't find two people who do the exact same thing, who have strengths in the same ways. You need complementary strengths, which means they will have differences. Yes. And that helps them conceptualize this in a way that now is about together, not different. So I never thought about this until this moment, and Deb may not agree, but Deb and I had a couples therapist on this project. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> I know exactly. I do agree. Okay. I do agree. Okay. That was uh, Kathleen. She was our developmental editor. It was not lost on. Uh, <laughs> okay. So let's for the listeners, the journey of developing a book is is quite a lot. There's so much that's going on behind the scenes before the final product comes out. And yet, you know, I think part of what adds to the validity of this book is this was not just Deb and Rick, but they had editors that have deep background in this kind of knowledge. And they could poke and question and say, okay, well, 
Rick and Deb, you brought this idea forward, but I actually see it this way. What do you guys want to do with this? Right? Is that kind of what I'm understanding? Is so? Yes, you're the authors, but even the editorial process had other very well informed minds around therapy and therapy process, and couples looking at your work and saying, "Well, hold on a second. Is that what I'm?" Well, I, I think Rick actually didn't mean it from a literary, but a literal. <laughs> oh, a literal. Okay. Well, that may be too. Yeah. 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 Am I right? Yeah. I would just check all the boxes. <laughs> check all the boxes. <laughs> because Kathleen has a history with Rick for many, many years. She's done uh, your editing and blogs and other work that you've, articles you've written and so forth. So when I came, when we all came together, I said, you know, how will this work? Can it work? Because Kathleen and Rick know each other's shorthand so well. And I come at it from a very different perspective. Rick's the numbers guy and, and the financial advisor, financial planner. I'm a therapist. And so she had to meld our languages. Well, with that comes also personality and perspectives. And so she was able to seamlessly and really beautifully bring our languages together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, she was the uh, co-author of my first book. Uh-huh. So she understood the language, and she has shut yeah. the piano lid on my fingers so many times and uh, bled all over my stuff that she can be rather direct with me. And, yeah. and uh, so I get it. So, and she, her job is to keep it readable. I wanted to say this. This book is written to the consumer. It's not written yeah. to therapists. And so it's meant to kind of be yeah, a do-it-yourself uh, financial therapy guide for the consumer. And in that way, Kathleen is a consumer. She's, she's an editor. She is not a mental health professional, although she's worked for some amazing mental health uh, um, people in the past. Uh, and, she, and she is not a financial planner. So she, we were very fortunate. I've been very fortunate to have someone like that in my life. And I also wanted to say there's a big difference between financial planning and financial therapy. I have firms that do both. Uh, in fact, one of yeah. my planners recently said, yes, I was talking to somebody about how we do uh, financial planning and financial therapy. And I was quick to respond, we do not do financial therapy. And I know most of my journey, and Ed, you have watched me in this journey. I was trying to figure out how do you do planning and therapy together? And uh, yeah. I even had one of my associates say, Rick, where, can we read a book on how to do this? And I, I said, Sarah, we're writing the book. <laughs> and so from my perspective, a financial therapist can't be doing investments. Can't. I mean, they can give a context for budgeting or do some of that, but it's not financial planning. Financial planning is very di- different, and they are synergistic. It's great if you're doing financial planning to have a financial therapist or a couple's financial therapist can make that process go much better, much quicker. But they're, they're, they both are very different from each other. So, you know, I think that it is an interesting question, right? And we'll deviate from the book a little bit. And, Deb, I'm sure you have your own thoughts. And, this, look, listeners, as you're – you're talking. You're listening to three very smart, very talented, and opinionated professionals <laughs> who are subject to change to some degree. I know I I can be 
Deb is shaking her head like, no, we're uh, not. But we yes, are. Yes, no, uh, that, that's no secret in my book. So I think, but I think what's fun, hopefully for the consumer, this doesn't scare the crap out of you, but it might. Um, we're humans and we're trying to figure this out and we're doing the best we can. And we have different ideas and conclusions that we're coming to about the boundaries of financial therapy and the boundaries of financial planning and what's happening in a financial planning relationship, what's happening in a therapy relationship, what's happening in a couple's therapy relationship. How do we blend and merge those? And each of us is like our own cook. And we're trying different experiments with different combinations of blending these, if you will, three big ingredients, financial planning, couples therapy and financial therapy. And so, you know, you're going to hear differences. And as a consumer, that's okay because we're not the exact same people. Uh, but we're all shooting to help our clients in the most effective, productive and ethical way possible. And there, that's a journey too. So as we think about, about your book and the journey of writing it, what I know we already talked about one of the favorite chapters, but do each of you have your own favorite chapter or favorite little section that you like, you're like, man, this part I just feel so good about. And it really, it did something to me, right? Cause I, I know in writing my own book, there are parts of my book that like it opened me, it, it healed me. I'm using air quotes, but it really moved me forward in my own journey. So I'm curious if there's a part of the book that really just did something significant to you or worked with a part of you. I guess this is, since I'm talking, I, don't, I can't say I have a favorite. I really did like the cognitive biases section. I really enjoyed that because, again, very few books made that user-friendly for couples mm. and in a therapeutic way. I think the financial trauma piece that we have, that we include, because I know couples or individuals cannot sidestep their past. The past is not always past. The past is alive and well in their behaviors current day. And in context to understand how their past is informing the present is a very helpful section. Financial betrayal, because I deal a lot with couples and sexual betrayal, the financial betrayal piece often is a co-partner, is a, <laughs> a co-passenger, and that in coupleships where there has been financial betrayal, we give and give some very clear structure to how to approach that and how to work with that, what to look for, and how to facilitate the, the healing that often can devastate couples long after sexual betrayal is healed because the financial detriment levels individuals for, for a much longer time due to the, the use of money or financial resources. That it, it is a huge part, right? In that, the financial loss when those type of betrayals happen, the loss of assets and resources, just from a simple perspective, comp, time value of money, you can't get back 10 years of time. And if you spent down 100,000, 200,000, half a million, whatever your number is, it's very hard to get that time back to accumulate that money. And so that the, the long lasting impact of, of, those problematic um, issues is is very real, right? So yeah, finance naming it in depth. I think this is kind of what I was getting at earlier. Is clients and, and I have wanted to sidestep my own 
traumatic history. It's taken a lot to really be able to look at it and understand how has it impacted me. But the reality is if we don't look at the in the rearview mirror and understand how the past is impacting the present, it's going to kind of keep lurking in the shadows, so to speak, and keep nagging at us and getting us. So yeah, that's, that's a big deal to, to, to just continue to walk into. Um, Rick, how about for you? I'm going to guess it's not the cognitive biases section. Ideas. Yeah. That made me think uh, on those things in a whole different way than I, I've ever thought. Quite frankly, I am so happy to hear that. I'm so glad. I've never heard a presentation on cognitive biases brought down to the individual. I think that's more <laughs> groundbreaking than many of the other things that we come come with so yeah this this is why this is so bizarre to me right in kind of a sweet way the other thing that really took a lot of work is reframing ifs we start the book out in chapter second by reframing ifs in the most simplistic terms possible Um, and i was out voted on this it was a two-to-one vote that said, we are going to keep this simple. And I am, I'm baked in IFS. And for me, it's like, okay, we can be simple, but we've got to be accurate. And I spent so much of the, uh, of the book. So I, I'm proud of, there's so much IFS sprinkled in the book. And I believe it's really accurate. We had some IFS people review it that gave us wonderful feedback in the simplicity to still make sure it was accurate to IFS theory and philosophy, which we come out with, I think it's now chapter 14, where we really get into IFS a little bit deeper. Right. Yeah. If the reader wants to know more, they can go towards the... So this is part of making it really approachable and really palatable by the consumer, by the average person. And so um, uh, I spent a lot of time going over and over and over and over that to make to make sure that that was correct <laughs> and trying to sprinkle it in throughout the whole the whole book right it's very um, important for you Rick and very important for us for the book but certainly that was the integrity of what you brought yeah to the, that because this this I think is the first book in in IFS in the IFS community that addresses couples in the context of money. So it's groundbreaking in that way, and I am hopeful that the IFS community will embrace it. I do want to add one thing before, make sure we get this in, that the reader has, we really want the reader to understand that there is no income level or demographic or relationship structure that um, is excluded. The book applies across the board, how little or how much and anywhere in between someone has as financial resources does not apply to one subset or another. Absolutely. I really, I really appreciate you naming that. I think that's a a great place to kind of bring this full circle and to close this part of the conversation is uh, I'm taking two big things away from this. Whether you know nothing about IFS or you're an IFS guru, this book will help, will move the needle for you. And, and it's approachable for someone that doesn't know the first thing about IFS, maybe doesn't even know much about therapy, still very approachable. 
for the person that's like, man, I love IFS and IFS has really transformed my life. It's going to take you into your relationship with money and help you see what's going on there. So either why. And then from the values and ethics perspective, this book is accessible to all demographics. And it's relevant for all demographics is what I'm hearing. So race, religion, sexuality, social class, politics. That was important to us. And important yep. to to the listeners of this show, too. So, uh, Deb, Rick, as we bring this interview to a close, what's one parting piece of advice, guidance uh, that you'd love to offer listeners? Go ahead, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I have, if you'd asked me that 30 years ago, I'd give you all sorts of advice. <laughs> and it had been good advice. And you wouldn't even have to ask for it. And now you ask me for advice and I freeze up. Like, no, I don't do that. I don't give advice. So that's my advice is only give advice when asked for advice and then be ready for it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I have have two words. I have two words. For the reader or the couples or the individuals who want to work on their intimacy, be curious. Mm. And that's very IFS. And it's universal. Curiosity is key. Curiosity is key. Mm -hmm. Stay curious. I love it. Well, Deb and Rick, thank you so much for another incredible contribution to people's relationship with money. And I know that there's future books and interviews and all to still come. Uh, If listeners want to find out more about each of your respective works, where can they find you? We'll put it in the show notes. But Um, Online. Yeah, digital footprint online, my website, www.debracaplancounseling.com, and also uh, in um, LinkedIn and Facebook and some other social media platforms. And uh, start at debracaplan.com and go from there. Yep. I have uh, advanced wellbeing.com, um, kaylorfinancial.com. I have a blog, Financial Awakenings, that I send out weekly. And I also have a podcast. Uh, the Financial Therapy Podcast. It's not about the money. I love it. I love it. It is a great podcast, by the way. I do listen to it. So, Deb, Rick, thank you so much. And until next time, be well. Thank you. Take care. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.